0: Shahar Kariv is chair of the economics department at UC Berkeley, where the focus of his research is in behavioral economics and financial decision-making. He is also a speaker at this week's annual Schwab Impact Conference for financial advisors and has agreed to share some of his time and thoughts with Seeking Alpha's community of investors. Thank you for joining us, Shahar. My pleasure. Thank you. We'll start right now with a question relevant to our readers. Millions of investors congregate on Seeking Alpha essentially to become richer. What do they need to know that your experience and research tell you they probably don't know about how to achieve their goals?
1: This is kind of the million-dollar question, of course. We all want to be wealthier, and uh, of course, we also want to be happier. Uh, We have multiple goals in life. Some of them can be achieved by throwing money at them, and some of them are not. Um, and, but it's, it's clear that, uh, financial well-being or wealth accumulation is becoming a larger and larger part from overall well-being. The happy or sad fact in life is that, uh, we need to make financial decisions. Uh, you know, a generation or two ago, people didn't need to make financial decisions because We lived, uh, life expectancy was much shorter. We were all on defined benefit pension plans. You know, when social security uh, age in the United States was set to 65, life expectancy was 61. So now making money, accumulating wealth is tremendously important because uh, given our uh, longer life, Uh, it allows us to achieve our other goals. Uh, You know, people are now retiring in their mid-60s, but they live into their late 80s, early 90s. In the first part of retirement, they want to have fun. It's expensive. In the second part of retirement, uh, they need to take care of their health. It's expensive as well. So we need to make financial decisions. And wealth accumulation depends on the quality of your financial decisions. And uh, financial decisions, I would say any financial decision is basically governed by three trade-offs, which I researched a lot and, of course, other people researched as well. And I call these trade-offs the three fundamental trade-offs in life. Let me, let me see. I, I'm curious what you think about this. So, you know, okay. we are making many, many financial decisions. Uh, some are more complex than others, but all of them are pretty complicated. Uh, I would claim that all financial decisions, large and small, are governed by these trade-offs. Okay? So here, here they come. Okay, The first trade-off is what I call risk versus return. The second trade-off is the trade-off between today versus tomorrow. And the third trade-off is the trade-off between self and others, meaning my own well-being and the well-being of other people. And I claim that all financial decisions are governed by a mixture of these Mm trade-offs. Let's take, for example, a big question. How much I should save for my retirement and how? It's a question about risk versus return. The more risk averse I am, I need to save more, and I need to put a larger fraction of my savings into safe assets because I'm risk averse. It's a question about today versus tomorrow. Specifically, consumption today versus consumption tomorrow, in the future, in retirement. Should I buy this car or should I save more so I will be able to consume more in retirement? And finally, it's a question about self versus others. For example, do I want to leave money for my kids and how much money I want to leave and how I want to allocate this amount among my kids? Now, the way that people like me, you know, uh, I'm called a decision theorist, are thinking that people are solving these trade-offs is by having what we call preferences, respectively risk preferences with which you are solving trade-offs between risk and return. Time preferences, with which you are solving trade-offs between today and tomorrow, and social preferences. These are the preferences that you solve the trade-offs between your own well-being and the well-being of other people. And the way to basically kind of make money is to be able to solve these trade-offs rationally and consistently. So, for example, people that are too risk-averse, they will not be able to make money. They will put money in bonds and they will not be able to make money. People that are too risk tolerant and don't have a good taste of what to invest will not make money as well. So in some sense, you need some kind of an intermediate risk attitudes and, of course, a good taste where to put your money. Also time preferences, people that are called present bias. These are people that for them today is much more important than tomorrow. They will not be able to make money because making money requires savings. It requires postponing consumption. And finally, you know, uh, uh, wealth accumulation also depends on your preferences, social preferences between self and other. People that want to leave money for their children, they will accumulate money. A lot of my research was basically studying the rationality, the economic rationality in with which people are solving these trade-offs and the different attitudes or preferences that people have towards risk, time, and other people. And preferences are very, very heterogeneous. And we can relate... The people that have the right preferences for wealth accumulation.
0: You know what I find fascinating about that? Part- there's so many things that we could go on on that one forever. But one of the things that strikes me is particularly interesting about that is it's really fundamentally rooted in a person's character. I met people who are brilliant, intellectually brilliant, successful in their careers, who just lose money in, in the stock market. It's not connected to how smart they are. Is that right? It's very you know it's a it's an it's a very,
1: very interesting comment. There is an area in political science that is actually called the presidential character. And basically what the you know political scientists defines character as something that the person develops early in life. And, you know, this view in political science that many presidents uh, kind of agree with is basically saying that your White House years are determined by your character, by, you know, your personal past. And I entirely, I entirely agree uh, that there is a lot of character that is not it's not developed in the classroom it's developed much earlier in life uh, which determines a lot of what the person is doing uh, you know both in politics and uh, and in finance absolutely
0: let's talk about financial advice and financial advisors what kind of investor should be looking for an advisor and who should stick to do it yourself investing
1: i always uh, compare financial, the question of financial advising to the questions of, should I take a personal trainer? Mm -hmm. Um, So let's let's think about the question, whether, you know, should Shapa take a personal trainer? So the way that I'm thinking about it is as follows. My goal in life is to lose 20 pounds, but my constraints are that I don't have time to go to the gym. And my preferences are that I don't like to exercise. Well, now I have a problem (laughs) because given my constraints and preferences, I cannot achieve my goals. So now I need to go to a personal trainer and the good personal trainer will find for me an exercise regime and a diet regime such that with high enough probability, I will achieve my goal or I will be able to achieve a more moderate goal. And he will help me solve this problem. You know, for example, the personal trainer trainer might introduce me to the wonderful world of yoga and Pilates, which I don't know. And I only thought about running and weightlifting. Mm -hmm. Financial advice is exactly the same. It's just much, much more complicated. So I think that people should write to themselves, what are my goals in life? I want to retire at a certain age with certain income. I want to send my kids to college. I want to buy a weekend home. I have to renovate my kitchen. Otherwise, my wife is going to leave me. You name it. People should list their goals. Now, people should list their constraints. How much money do I make? How much money do I think I'll make in the future? How much I'm saving And then people should think about their preferences, how risk averse I am. And if they cannot see a path to achieve their goals, given their constraints or preferences on their own, they need to speak to a financial advisor. Now, you know, when you speak to a financial advisor, it's for, of course, different degrees. But the problem is, you know, uh, the problem is uh, this what I call the puzzle with three pieces that is very complicated to solve. And the pieces are goals, constraints, and preferences. Now, many people, they don't even know their goals. They they just cannot articulate the goals to themselves. So they need to speak with a financial advisor such that he will help them organize their goals. Some people can organize their goals, and even the goals are realistic. And these people also know what their constraints are but they don't know their preferences. So they basically need a financial advisor to help them to understand their attitudes towards risk and towards time. And finally, there are people that actually they have a very clear idea what their goals are, what their constraints are, and what their preferences are, but they are unable to come with the financial portfolio with which they will achieve their goals given their constraints and preferences. So... Different people have different needs from a financial advisor, but I would put all of this under the issue of help me solve this three pieces puzzle, goals, constraints, and preferences. Finally, we have to remember that this puzzle, you don't solve it once because, you know, life life changes, the economy is changing, your goals are changing, your constraints are changing, even your preferences are changing. We know that people, when they are are getting older, they are becoming more loss-averse. We can get into this. What is the difference between risk aversion and loss aversion? But over time, your goals are changing, your constraints are changing, and your preferences are changing. So, If you solve the puzzle when you are 30, then you need to continuously make sure that these three pieces are attached together, which is very difficult.
0: Right. In fact, I hadn't considered the difference between risk aversion and loss aversion. Maybe briefly you could explain the difference?
1: Yes. Let's suppose that I would ask you the following question. What do you prefer? Gaining some amount for sure or playing with me a risk game where I will flip a coin? And if it lends heads, you will get nothing. And if it will get it will it will lend tails, you'll get some much larger amount of money. Now, depending on the amounts, some people will take the sure thing and some people will take the coin flip. Whether you take the sure option or take the coin flip depends on your risk aversion, on your level of risk aversion. So this is risk aversion, this is we all know. Now, let me illustrate to you what is loss aversion. Let's suppose that instead of talking about gains, I will just talk about losses. So now you have to choose between two options. Either the the, the sure option is losing some amount for sure. The coin flip is 50-50 chance of losing nothing or losing much more. So what is loss aversion? Loss aversion is the additional risk aversion that we feel when we move from the domains of gains to the domain of losses. Mm -hmm. This is loss aversion. And let me say this, everyone suffers from some level of loss aversion. Can I do a, a simple experiment on you? Sure. Okay. So let's suppose you walk in the street and you find the $100. You just found the $100 on the sidewalk and find their keeper. So you pick the $100 and you now have, you gain a $100 that you basically didn't expect to get. Think about how how happy this will make you. Okay, just now let me move to you to a second scenario. You just went to the ATM. You took a $100. You put them in your pocket. You walk in the street, you want to buy something, you reach to your pocket to get the $100, the $100 are gone. How unhappy it will make you. And I'm willing to bet that losing the $100 will make you more unhappy than gaining the $100 will make you happy. Think about it in terms of absolute
0: value. 100%, without any doubt. Okay,
1: so you are loss-averse because you suffer more disutility from losing the $100, then you're basically getting utility from gaining the $100. And this is the source of loss, aversion. This is basically the uh, Nobel Prize for Danny Kahanaman. This is what is called the Kahanaman-Tversky famous 1979 paper that later on got Danny Kahanaman the Nobel Prize. It's exactly
0: this notion. Yes, I think I recall that people feel the pain of loss something like two and a half times the joy of gain. Is that right?
1: So there are different calibrations on how much let me say that people are, ve- every, people are very heterogeneous in everything. So also the pain of losses relative to gains, different people will exhibit it very differently. It's, uh, you know, We can always talk about some effect, what is the effect on average in the population, but we always need to remember that everything comes with huge heterogeneity among, pe- among human beings. But by the way, if we are talking about uh, risk aversion and loss aversion, I think that everyone will know what risk aversion is and everyone heard about loss aversion. Some people, they don't have a real concept in their mind what loss aversion means, but it's kind of intuitive. What I actually think is a very important piece that many people are missing is what uh, decision theorists call ambiguity aversion. And, you know, if we talk about risk profiling, you know, my own humble view about the way that we are doing risk profile in the financial advice industry is that it's completely broken. What people are talking about is risk tolerance, but you should also talk about loss tolerance. And actually, the most important piece that is completely missing is ambiguity tolerance. What is your tolerance to ambiguity? Ambiguity is different than risk. This is, I think, is the most important thing when we are talking about risk versus return trade-offs. When we decision theorists, when we call a situation risky, we mean there is uncertainty, but the probabilities are known. For example, like a flip of an even coin. So you know there is 50-50 chance. A situation involves ambiguity when there is uncertainty, but in addition, the probabilities are unknown. Let's take an example, actually, from uh, medical treatment. Let's suppose that you need to go through some medical procedure, and you ask the doctor, what's the probability that the medical procedure will succeed? In one situation, the doctor is telling you 70%. In a second situation the doctor is telling you something between 60 and 80%. The situation when the doctor told you 70%, you know that the procedure is risky, but you know exactly the probabilities of success. When the doctor tells you that the probability is between 60 to 80, the situation is not only risky, it's also ambiguous. Why? Because you don't have precise probabilities. And people really, really dislike precise, imprecise probabilities. Now, when you think about investing, a stock, whenever people are telling me a stock is a risky asset, I'm telling them, no, a stock is an ambiguous asset because you don't know the probabilities that it will go up or down. By the way, this is exactly what explains what we call the home bias in investing stocks why people are shying away from investing in stocks in emerging markets stocks in emerging markets are not riskier than stocks here they are more ambiguous because you have less information so you can put less precise probabilities about what will happen to this stock now in terms of diversifying you should actually invest far away from you. Mm -hmm. But this goes against ambiguity. So I actually think, you know, what we call the equity premium puzzle, why people, given historical returns, not putting more money in stocks relative to bonds. Now, the equity premium puzzle cannot be explained by risk aversion because to explain the size of it, you need risk levels that are just too high. But ambiguity aversion can go a long way Because it's not the case that a bond is safe and a stock is risky. A stock is ambiguous and the bond is unambiguous Mm. the bond is telling you i'll give you four percent now of course there is a probability that uh, you know (laughs) there will be a default but the stock involves a lot of ambiguity
0: that's for certain a lot of ambiguity i couldn't assess the probability that any particular stock is going to be from x to y and frankly i wouldn't believe any analyst who told me this stock can go up between x and y
1: there's no way to know that's right. That's exactly the case. And if you think about many times in life, you are seeking information to reduce ambiguity. And we are very, very troubled by ambiguity. You know, one of the things, uh, you are now in L.A., uh, one of the things about driving in L.A., is not only that it takes time because, <laughs> you know, you have traffic jam. It's also ambiguous because you don't know. It will take me half an hour. It will take me 45 minutes. It's just very hard to tell. So one of the good things about Waze, for example, not only that it shows you the way, it reduces ambiguity because when you'll put it in your phone, you'll basically know, okay, Waze estimates that it will take me this amount of time. But, you know, of course, it can take you more or less. But what it does, it reduces ambiguity. This is one of the problems in traffic that not only that it takes time, it's also you cannot
0: know how much time it will take you. And we really don't like ambiguity. We really don't, so that leads me to a final question, um, in light of this ambiguity problem, which I never have thought about actually, at, at least in those terms and it, it helps me have it helps me and I'm certain our listeners gain greater clarity on the difficulty of investing so I'm just going to ask you, is there a way listeners can walk away from this podcast and improve their investment decision making absolutely. there are methods to
1: uncover your own attitudes towards risk and time and other people this is not something that you can articulate in words you know if i ask you how risk averse you are is like asking you how many white blood cells do you think you have or what is your cholesterol level yes i can tell you i ate a huge steak yesterday probably this is not good for my cholesterol so the first thing that we need, and this is, I think, it's the basis of, ev- of everything. There needs to be what I call, and, you know, a decision theorist and game theorist call common knowledge between a client and an advisor about what the risk attitudes, time attitudes are. Without this, we are going to basically uh, stand on very shaky grounds. Uh, we as a profession... We invested enormous amount of time in perfecting portfolios. We now have portfolio for almost every, everything, but we invested very little time understanding the client. I always say, and, and I truly, truly believe in this, you know, I'm in my mid-40s, uh, maybe I should say now I'm in my late 40s already, but I'm perfectly healthy. So for me, my financial advisor is actually more important than my physician. I mean, I truly mean it. But this means, this means, and you know, listeners should understand that I'm holding them accountable, and I'm holding them to the same level that I'm holding physicians. I'm basically holding financial institutions to the same level that I'm holding uh, providers of medical care. They are that important for my well-being. Now, going back to your question, suppose my physician, I went to my physician and my physician asked me, Shachar, how do you feel today from one to 10? And I will tell him, "Hmm, today I feel three. And he will say, oh, you know, you need to think about it carefully because three is a surgery Mm -hmm. and he wouldn't take my blood sample. He wouldn't take my x-rays. So even if he's a great surgeon, I will run away, right? Because he doesn't know me. The same is true for a financial advisor. If I go to a financial advisor, and to be honest, he gives me this silly questionnaire about what are my risk attitudes, and he doesn't even ask me about ambiguity, and he forgets completely about time, I'm going to run away. Because there is no way, even if this person has excellent portfolios, he wouldn't know which portfolio to fit to me.
0: We have learned not just how to make better decisions. We've actually learned from this how to select a good financial advisor and how to run away from one who is not going to be helpful. For that, I I want to thank Professor Shachar Kariv, chair of the economics department at UC Berkeley and a brilliant behavioral economist. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure.